Red light is still probably the single most popular type of light used in photobiomodulation, but it's being rapidly overtaken by near-infrared light. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. If you've been listening to this show for a while and following our work on Human OS, you may be aware that light is a subject that I am fascinated by. In September of 2018, I gave a talk at TEDx Marin entitled, How to Optimize Light for Health. In September of 2019, I gave a talk at the Ancestral Health Symposium at UC San Diego on the effects of sunlight, including ultraviolet or UV radiation on various aspects of health, including cancer, autoimmunity, and metabolic health. I've also done many episodes now on Humanos Radio on light and health, and I'll include links to those shows in the show notes for this episode here. As you might have guessed at this point, today's show will also be on light, but the focus is on something I have yet to cover, red and infrared light. The claims of what red and near-infrared light therapy can induce can sound perhaps unrealistic. Is red light actually good for many different health issues or is it just some form of snake oil? But what if it is healthy for our physiology in many ways? Perhaps then we can also think of red light as a missing nutrient of sorts. This is why I'm very pleased to have with me today, Michael Hamblin. Michael is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. He has over 400 peer reviewed articles on the subject. He's authored and edited 23 different textbooks and in 2017, he received the first ever Lifetime Achievement Award in photomedicine from NALT, the North American Association for Photobiomodulation Therapy. Michael, it's a pleasure to have you with me today. Welcome to Human OS Radio. Thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. Let's start with some basics. What is photobiomodulation and does it go by any other name? About five years ago, the experts in the field came to a consensus decision to call it photobiomodulation. And as you point out, the reason for this <laughs> was, it was a whole cacophony of other names. And there were things like low-level laser therapy, low-intensity radiation, cold laser, soft laser, low this, that, and the other. And one of the reasons for that is that the field developed from laser therapy. So mm -hmm. when Andre Mester discovered it, he used a laser. And that was in 1967. And since then, people use lasers all the time. And the reason they call it low level is that you can use lasers for cutting and burning tissue, so-called surgical lasers. So that was one of the reasons of trying to distinguish it from high-power surgical lasers. But low is a very uh, subjective term. I mean, you can't define low. What do you mean by low? And also, in recent years, maybe the last 10 years, LEDs have become way more common than lasers. Mm. And there are many reasons for that. One is that Lasers are expensive. You need to have laser safety training courses. You need to wear laser safety goggles. People would go to laser therapists to have a laser shone on them and mm. pay whatever, $50 for a session of having a laser shone on them. But when LEDs came in, 
people realized that these were safe. They're cleared by the FDA for as being safe for general health and wellness applications. It's different from FDA approval, which requires a controlled clinical trial for a medical indication. But right. LEDs are approved as safe for general health and wellness applications. Perfectly fine to sell LED devices. There are literally hundreds of them on the internet. Go mm. to the internet, you can search for LED therapy or LED arrays. You get all sorts of wavelengths and powers. This therapy went by many different names. It originated because in the 60s, they started to use high-powered lasers, which are used for cutting and surgery. The first application of red light was lower-energy lasers. Since that's where it originally came from, that's what the name was. With the invention of LEDs, you could now have more accessible, cheaper delivery, and it didn't have to be in lasers. Overall, the name of the category changed to photobiomodulation. What we're really talking about here is red light. What are the wavelengths that we are talking about? Red light is still probably the single most popular type of light used in photobiomodulation, but it's being rapidly overtaken by near-infrared light. The near-infrared light, depending on how you define it, is invisible. Some wavelengths around 800 nanometers are in dim red, so you can see them. But once you get to beyond 850, they're invisible to the human eye. But that doesn't mean they're not highly effective. If I had to choose, I'd say that near-infrared, say 850, 870, 904, 940, is more effective than red light. Lots of LED devices, because you you can get LEDs in the red or the near-infrared, and you usually use them in arrays where they may be tens or even hundreds of individual diodes mix and match. So quite often you'll get 660 nanometer LEDs interspersed with 850 nanometer LEDs. That's a very popular combination. These different frequencies might be having different effects, but they're all within the range of red to infrared. Yeah. And there is some evidence that by mixing red and near infrared, it's greater than the sum of its parts. How intense does the light need to be in order to have a physiological effect. Does intensity matter? Yep, absolutely. Intensity is usually measured in power density, and that's milliwatts per square centimeter. But a very important metric is the total power, so the total number of watts of energy that are hitting the body. Of course, power is definition energy per unit time, but another important concept is the total amount of energy you deliver. So even if you had a relatively low power device, if it was shining light on the body for a long time, the joules of energy would add up. What a lot of people don't realize is that the sun is actually quite powerful in the optical wavelengths. And depending on whereabouts you are in the country and what time of day it is, but if you were to sunbathe for one hour at midday, you would absorb a million joules of energy in one hour sunbathing in your body. Mm. And that's because you're exposing a lot of surface area. If you have a a large array of LEDs, and you've probably seen LED beds, like tanning beds, except the UV tubes have been replaced with red near-infrared LEDs. So you can climb into one of these whole body light beds and again absorb hundreds of thousands of joules of energy, half an hour, that sort of time. Mm -hmm. 
Now, this is a quite a different concept from laser therapy, right? Because laser yeah. therapy was delivered as a small focus spot, usually to what they call points. When you had some kind of pathology, let's say you had arthritis in your knee, they would shine points all around your knee, like mm. maybe 12 points. And the laser therapist thought this, there was some art in choosing the exact points to shine the laser. When you're using LEDs, you basically wrap your whole knee around with a flexible LED array. Mm. So you don't worry about points. You're more interested in men in the total number of joules, which is mm. way higher than you would deliver with a laser. You've indicated that some people would be using this for arthritis in the knee. Let's talk about what photobiomodulation has been investigated for. And in this discussion, maybe we could talk about the areas that have the most amount of work behind them and the areas that you find to be most interesting now, given the most current studies on red light and different physiological processes. Right. Best to divide this into two areas. If you're going to use photobiomodulation for general health and wellness, then we're really talking about the skin and the muscles, because these are usually like whole body light beds or big arrays, right? And the muscles have a lot of mitochondria, and the mitochondria are the parts of the cell that absorb the light. And that helps for athletic performance, recovery from exercise, and a whole army of things. Mm. If you're going to treat some disease or pathological condition or an injury, then you generally focus the light. It could be a laser or it could be with a, a small LED array on the part of the body that needs it. And this is quite often it's joints, tendons, because they're painful, they're inflamed. There's not really good medical treatments for tendonitis, arthritis, all these things, tennis elbow, carpal tunnel, you know, shoulders, feet. So diabetics have a lot of problems with their feet. So there's all these parts of the body, quite often they're in the limbs, in the joints, but there are also applications deeper within the body. And people have realized if you have a big LED array, you can put quite a lot of energy into the body. Some people are a bit obsessed about optical penetration into tissue, and they think the light has to get deep inside the body, which mm -hmm. probably doesn't if you, if you look at the tissue optics. And that doesn't mean that delivering light to the body is not helpful. So for like lung conditions, kidney failure, a lot of immune problems. My personal area of interest is in the brain. So mm -hmm. when you put near-infrared light on the head, it helps a whole variety of brain disorders. Like you know, if you've had a stroke or a head injury, or even getting a bit old, so your memory's going, and maybe you've even got frank dementia. It also helps a lot of psychiatric disorders, so depression, anxiety, insomnia, drug addiction, ADHD, autism, all sorts of psychiatric or psychological conditions. Now, there are some applications that make money, and these are generally in the cosmetic, aesthetic type of applications. Hair regrowth is a big deal. Various caps and combs and things you can put on your head to get your hair regrowing if the old androgenetic alopecia is just starting. If you've let it go too far and you've got a shiny bald head, it's not going to work, right? But mm. it does work when you just notice some thinning hair 
Now, skin tone and skin rejuvenation is a big deal. So there's lots of LED face masks on the market that will help with fine line and wrinkles, blotchy skin, pigmented spots, all sorts of aesthetic things. Mm. And then the other area is fat loss because obesity is such a huge problem. Now, it turns out that photobiomodulation is quite good for fat loss if you combine it with exercise. Just lie there in an LED bed and you think that's going to melt off you. It probably won't. Too bad. Because the photobiomodulation stimulates the muscles, it burns the fat much more effectively than if mm. you just do the exercise on its own. Interesting. So would you want to use red light therapy before or after exercise then? Good question. I mean, some people even do it during. So that's the one device I saw was an exercise bike with all the near infrared. There were actually lamps, not LEDs, but the same thing arranged around the exercise bike. The idea would get on the bike, you would start cycling, and the near infrared light would come on at the same time. But I don't think you need to do that. I you see. could do it before, you could do it after. Typically, it's used as part of a training regimen. So if you go out training, you come back, you have 15 minutes for the biomodulation, and you do that religiously every time you go training, mm -hmm. your performance will be a lot better than if you omitted the photobiomodulation. Interesting. Is there a time window in which you should get exposure to the red light after exercise, or does it have to happen within the day? Yeah, probably. If you're just going to do exercise, a race or something, you would have the red light maybe a couple of hours before. Before, Some people okay. do it directly before, which helps. I see. But if you do it as part of a training regimen, it's quite often to use the light afterwards, you know, because you come in from training, you're a bit sore, and it definitely helps muscle recovery a lot. Well, that is the new exciting field in exercise is all about recovery. Ten years ago, it was more about advanced training techniques, and now people are realizing that so much of the benefit occurs after the stimulus. So all therapies, whether it's ingestion, muscle, massage, or now red light therapy, anything that can improve your recovery capacity is of interest to athletes. I know that. How far does red light and infrared light penetrate into the body? That's a good question. It's endlessly debated, and you know, there's <laughs> a lot of literature on tissue optics. The best wavelength is in the low 800s for penetration. That's been shown multiple times. Okay. And it depends what you mean by penetrate. If you're tissue optics, you calculate the distance to 1 over E, and 1 over E is 37%. So it's the distance into the body where the light is 37% of its initial intensity. Right? Okay. And that's okay. in the near infrared, about a centimeter, I think, generally. Nobody really knows how many photons you need to get inside you, say in your brain, right? Mm -hmm. In your brain, generally, it doesn't see much light. Even a relatively small number of near-infrared photons could be highly active in the brain. And having said that, whenever you shine light on the body, it's absorbed by blood that's circulating. There's a lot of blood circulating in the skin, so a lot of the light is absorbed by the blood. And we really don't know how much of the benefit is from the light penetrating deep inside the body and how much being absorbed by the blood and beneficial things being circulated around. Does the application need to be local? Yeah, in many parts of the body, the lower legs, right, the bones are fairly near the surface. 
And it's been shown if you shine light on the lower legs, you actually stimulate the bone marrow to release stem cells. That also applies to the head. I mean, there is bone marrow in the skull. Putting the light on the head might stimulate the bone marrow to release stem cells. There's three issues, direct penetration of photons into the tissue of interest, systemic absorption by circulating blood, and stimulating bone marrow if the bones are relatively near the surface. Red light will also penetrate into bone or through it. Yeah. Bone is scattering, but it's absorbing. It's white, right? Things that are white scatter light. Things that are colored absorb light. Let's talk about mechanisms then. We've talked about the origin of where it came from and the naming. We've talked about some of the therapeutic areas that have been explored. Why does red and near-infrared light therapy have an effect on our physiology? What is it doing that's causing some physiological change in the body? The main mechanistic receptor is the mitochondria. As you know, the mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cells. They glucose and oxygen and produce ATP and water, carbon dioxide. And they have a lot of chromophores, and they have chromophores that absorb in the near infrared. Cytochrome C oxidase, which is unit four of the mitochondrial respiratory chain, is a favorite chromophore, but it's almost certain that other mitochondrial chromophores are involved. So you get more ATP, more oxygen consumption, but you get a lot of signaling arising from the stimulated mitochondria. Signaling is four main mediators of the signaling. You get a brief burst of reactive oxygen species, which is can be compared to the ROS you get from exercise. It's not a huge amount. It's not chronically prolonged. It's a brief burst to stimulate things. You get, as I said, more ATP. And from that, you can get cyclic AMP. There are a lot of cyclic AMP responsive transcription factors. You get nitric oxide released. It's uncertain whether the nitric oxide comes from hollysis of stored nitric oxide, but you definitely get more nitric oxide. And you also get substantial changes in calcium within the cells, within the mitochondria. So these are the four secondary mediators. Mm -hmm. And then these secondary mediators trigger active transcription factors. Mm -hmm. Um, We did a a review recently where no less than 14 separate transcription factors have been reported to be activated by light, depending on the tissue and the condition and so forth and so on. There are models when a single exposure to light, a mouse model, has lasting effects for four weeks. We showed that with a traumatic brain injury model. So we did a TBI to the mice shone light on their head four hours after we hit their heads and their neurological function continued to steadily improve for four weeks. So if somebody gets a head injury on, let's say, a football field, then if it is a daytime game, they should not have their head covered, but should try to get some light if it's in the sunny day. I think the best thing would be to put a near-infrared helmet on their head. Is the intensity of a near-infrared helmet more intense than what sunshine would deliver? It's a better wavelength. Okay. The peak of sunlight is in the green, around about 520 nanometers. And that doesn't go through hair very well. It doesn't go through the scalp and the skull. I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't get out in the sun. I'm sure you should. Mm -hmm. But really, I think therapeutically, a near-infrared helmet would be the way to go. 
So all athletic teams that have the possibility of incurring some sort of concussion, it would be propitious to have a helmet like this on, believe, on the playing field. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the problem with a head injury is chronic, right? So you have concussion. Most people recover fine. Yeah. But in some cases, you end up with long-term psychological problems. Somnia, irritability, headaches, and these last for months. And they are treated quite well with these near-infrared helmets. I want to go back to these mechanisms a bit. What is a chromophore? It's a molecule that absorbs light. So it has an absorption spectrum of the wavelengths we're talking about in the red and the near-infrared. And you have a spectrophotometer. You can record the absorption spectrum so you can see the peaks. Obviously, hemoglobin is a red pigment in the blood, so the absorption spectrum of hemoglobin is known pretty well. The absorption spectrum of mitochondria is also fairly well known. If you isolate mitochondria, you have a dark brown pellet. Most of the cell is colorless, but it's the little mitochondria that have the color. I've seen that there are no mechanisms that we know about that are contributing to the aging process that do not include the mitochondria as a part of that mechanism. On the show, it's been a theme for a while. How do we increase and improve and sustain mitochondrial health? And we live indoors 90% of the time, always fully clothed. The amount of actual sunlight that we get is vastly reduced from a natural condition. You can yep. imagine here that one of the problems of energetics of the body has to do with the lack of red light that is penetrating into the skin. But get a question, can natural red light penetrate clothing? The longer the wavelength, the better it penetrates clothing. So mm. when you get to 900 nanometers, clothing is pretty transparent. Okay. It's, it's not like it's not a barrier, but it doesn't really absorb. There goes my idea for diaphanous clothing that people can walk around. <laughs> well, I mean, red light doesn't go through. With red light, you're talking about what's the color of the dye in your clothing, right? So if you have a black T-shirt, red light's not going to go through it. No. Mitochondria and other parts of the cell in the body will absorb red light, and it affects their physiology. We know that a variety of things occur, including a burst of reactive oxygen species. We thought formerly that those were bad. We wanted to limit them. That was a big mistake. We now know that the induction of those through things like exercise and fasting and xenohormetic molecules in food, that the triggering of those reactive oxygen species is important for our health. It triggers pro-survival pathways, transcription factors that then elicit a variety of proteins that make the cell healthier. Red light is one of these nutrients, if you will, or stimulators of that process. And that potentially is why we are seeing a broad range of different issues benefit from red light therapy. So I'm really interested in looking at photobiomodulation just as a health practice. Health practice is what I define as the different things you can try to incorporate into your life willfully to try to be healthy. We now have, as you mentioned, all different sorts of devices ranging from small to large that have different philosophies about the right wavelength and intensity. Can you see red light becoming a part of a regular thing that somebody who's looking to optimize their health should do to add one other stimulation for health? Absolutely. I sort of predict that the day will come when every household will have at least one photobiomodulation device. Mm. And maybe they'll have several, they'll have a helmet, they'll have something to wrap around their joints and their 
in their legs or have a big panel. If you're fairly uh, comfortably off, you may have a whole body light bed. This is no real downside of this. Uh, side effects of very rare and very minor. And for all intents and purposes, there are no side effects. Right? I was going to ask, can you overdo it? Well, in principle, you can overdo it. I think you'd have to be a bit crazy. You'd have to lie in a, in a light bed for like two hours, or you'd have to have a helmet on your head for an hour. These things are designed for treatment periods of 15 to 30 minutes, because it's a bit boring to, to sit there for a huge length of time. Right. One issue that not many people realize is that different individuals have different sensitivities. So mm. there's a small number of people who are hypersensitive to light. Okay. And they're the ones that tend to complain of side effects. And you know, they say, oh, I couldn't get to sleep. I had a headache, whatever. I think it's fairly rare. And also, these people are hypersensitive to all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. You know, like bright lights, like smells, like sort of people that say they're allergic to modern life. Mm-hmm. There's another small group of people that are like blocks of wood. You could shine light on them all day and nothing would happen. But the, the majority of people are somewhere in the middle. And the people that make recommendations for dosimetry are sort of concentrating on the bulk of people in the middle. Are these the frequencies of red and infrared light that will warm up the body? To some degree. The the majority of the heat comes from the actual LEDs. So the electrical efficiency of the LEDs, around about 25-30%, right? Mm -hmm. 70% of the electricity you put in is heat in the diodes. So manufacturers make great efforts to remove this heat. You know, they have fancy metallic conducting sort of things. And a lot of devices will have fans, little fairly silent fans circulate air to remove the heat from the device. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. the radiation itself, when it's absorbed by the body, will produce some heat. But that's the power densities that are used, that's minor. But really, it's a pleasant feeling of warmth. You have to get up to several hundred milliwatts per square centimeter before the heat on the skin becomes uncomfortable. It's definitely not worth worrying what happens inside your body. If the intensity on the skin is painful, you'll go, ouch. People worry, will it fry my brain? I think that'd be ridiculous. (laughs) If you can't feel it on your head, it's not going to do anything nasty to your brain. I have um, infrared sauna. The difference between me sitting in an infrared sauna and standing in front of a Juve light is very different. The Juve is a manufacturer. They make one of these devices. One of them they make is the size of you, so it's about five or six feet. The difference between standing in front of the Juve, like you said, slightly warm, and being in the infrared sauna where you sweat like crazy, is that have everything to do with the frequency of the red light? Absolutely. So infrared saunas do not generally have much near-infrared. I mean, some manufacturers say, I'm going to put near-infrared LEDs in in infrared saunas. But by and large, they're ceramic-emitting plates that emit a broad band centered about 9 microns, 9,000 nanometers. It's a very broad band, so there is, goes all the way down to 1 or 2 microns. Now, this has a physiological effect Mainly the chromophore for mid-infrared is water. It's the only conceivable chromophore. 
but there is special kinds of water inside cells called nanostructured water, which has different absorption properties from bulk water. The hypothesis is that mid-infrared and maybe even near-infrared can be absorbed by this nanostructured water and that can change the conformation of ion channels, for instance, because the nanostructured water is on the membranes in which there are ion channels. So even a, a relatively small amount of perturbation to the vibrational structure of the water could change the protein in the ion channels. That's the hypothesis. And then uh, that might affect energetics by making it perhaps... Calcium, yeah. It affects calcium. So that, that's yeah. why the calcium changes is mainly opening of calcium ion channels. So how close do you want to stand or be near one of these devices? It doesn't have to be on your skin. I put it on my skin because I think it's more efficient. Mm-hmm. The LED is touching your skin. More of the light goes in rather than being diffusely reflected. The LED light is not focused. So if you stand in front of an LED panel, a surprising amount of the light is diffusely reflected off your skin. If you lie on the LED panel, much more of it goes in. So the closer you are the more intense the light will be in terms of its absorption. You're getting more out of the time. Yep. One thing I tell a lot of people is that LED light is cheap. You can have one or 200 watts of LED light for not a lot of money. So then you don't worry so much about wasting a lot of the light. You know, if it just goes off into the room or it's reflected from your skin. You have longer exposures because you're in the room. It's less intense, but you're getting exposure to red light in your day. If you only have a one or 200 milliwatt laser, I mean, that's very little power. So you, you want to get all of it into the area you're using, which is, you know, not to say that laser therapy doesn't work. It's not a very efficient way of doing it. We know with circadian biology or timing biology, that blue light is the most potent signal, particularly for entering into the eye, affecting what are called intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells that go to the master clock and tell the brain it's day. Blue light means it's day. Do you know of red lights, does that have any effect on the circadian system, which then would mean that the timing of your exposure to red light being an important factor that we need to think around? Do you want to have this around dawn and dusk? That's when the tone of natural light is more red. Or does it really matter? Is it just a certain amount of exposure per day that seems to do the trick? And my understanding is you want the blue light in the morning. Blue light suppresses melatonin and wakes you up. Red light increases melatonin and sends you to sleep. So you want the red light lasting at night before you go to bed mm-hmm. and the blue light in the morning. That's my understanding. And red near and red light is surprisingly good at sending you to sleep. Interesting. I did not know that. You can do this within, let's say, an hour before bed, and that should be enough to help. I have a near infrared device I keep by my bedside. If I happen to wake up in the middle of the night, I put it on my head and back to sleep like a baby. Is there direct evidence that red light will stimulate the production or synthesis or release of melatonin, or is it simply just the absence of the blue light that's causing that? There's a couple of papers. There was a Chinese paper where they used um, whole body red LED type things. I think they measured melatonin. Mm. If you search for one of the the biomodulation terms, I mean, even so, 
triple LT is still the best term to search for on PubMed in melatonin. I mean, yeah, you'll probably pick up a few references. I saw one of your recent references on photobiomics. Right. <laughs> Tell us about that. So the idea is if you put light on the belly, can you beneficially affect the composition or microbiome in the gut? So all the different bacteria that live in your gut have to be in a nice, healthy balance, right? Mm. Uh, a lot of the bacteria are beneficial, but it's quite easy for the non-beneficial bacteria to take over, depending on what you're eating and other parts of your lifestyle. And people are realizing now that imbalances in the microbiome, mainly in the gut microbiome, but there are other important microbiomes on your skin and in your mouth and other parts of the body, but mainly the gut. So the folks in Australia have done some studies in mice by putting red near and red light on the belly, and they've measured the bacteria in the feces and found beneficial changes. Yeah. Uh, I don't think this has been done yet in humans, so I'm sure people are trying it. Certainly the gut is an interesting subject and one that I think maybe 15 years ago, a few people were talking about. Now it's broadly appreciated and discussed. So that is another interesting attribute of red light. Can it enhance our own microbiome and create a more complementary, beneficial community? Or is it also having an effect on the endocrine system that they release by affecting their energetics? If it is affecting the bacteria, what is the mechanism of action? Are you aware of any work looking at the combination of the compound methylene blue and photobiomodulation? And for the audience, uh, methylene blue is a very interesting compound. The National Institute of Aging has the Aging Intervention Program. They're looking at different compounds that have an influence on lifespan. One of the compounds that has had a positive effect extending rodent lifespan is methylene blue. Old compound thought to be a mitochondrially targeted antioxidant. So instead of broadly quenching reactive oxygen species, it might work more specifically within the mitochondria to quench those free radicals and thereby having a beneficial effect on reducing DNA damage to mitochondrial DNA. Is there any work that you're aware of that's looking at that combo? Because they're both affecting energetics. Could this be a synergistic combo? Methylene blue, as you say, is a very multifunctional dye, but it does act as a traditional photosensitizer in photodynamic therapy. Mm -hmm. And for that to happen, the light has to be absorbed by methylene blue, which has a broad absorption peak centered about 660 nanometers, 630, 660, 670. They will be absorbed by methylene blue, which will then go to a triplet state, and you will pass the energy to ground state oxygen producing reactive singlet oxygen. Now we mentioned ROS before. These are ROS that are produced in the cells by the mitochondria. In the case of methylene blue, it's a photochemical generation of ROS. It's possible that low levels of singlet oxygen can be beneficial. Certainly high levels kill things. They kill mm -hmm. bacteria, they kill cancer cells. This is traditional photodynamic therapy. Of course, you could use near-infrared light, which is not absorbed by methylene blue. My understanding is that in the absence of light, methylene blue functions in the mitochondria as an alternative electron acceptor, actually participates in mitochondrial electron transfer. Right. And that's why it helps brain disorders and so forth and so on. So if you were going to combine methylene blue with light, 
I would think carefully whether you want the light to be absorbed by the methylene blue, in which case you're doing very low dose PDT. You could use near infrared where it's definitely not absorbed by the methylene blue, it would be absorbed by the mitochondria, and then you could look to see if there were beneficial, even synergistic um, interactions. Uh, the other thing is when you ingest methylene blue systemically, it's reduced to the leuco form. So it stops being blue and it doesn't absorb light. I will wait to see clinical outcomes before I start to muck around with that sort of combination. <laughs> Last question for you. What is the area that you're most excited about? Is there momentum in a certain area at the moment? The two big areas are Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, which have no real medical treatment at all. And as you probably know, tens of billions of dollars have been wasted on failed clinical trials for Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really has been a graveyard for many pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. Parkinson's, likewise. And then psychiatric disorders. So again, it's a huge market and there's a lot of psychiatric drugs out there and some of them work, but they, most of them have fairly bad side effects, antidepressants, mm -hmm. sleeping pills. I mean, they make a lot of money and obviously they work to some degree, but people are becoming more loath to take psychiatric drugs. And if a near-infrared helmet could produce the same benefits or even better benefits than these drugs, I think it's a huge area. But I think Alzheimer's is the single most exciting area because mm -hmm. nothing else works. There are trials going on now for photobiomodulation for Alzheimer's. It could possibly be working via multiple mechanisms. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. You know, it increases cerebral blood flow and oxygenation. So if nothing else, just having more blood and better oxygen delivery to your brain is helpful. All the transcription factors, neurogenesis, synaptogenesis, all these other signaling pathways in your brain. Michael, this is such a fascinating subject. Quite honestly, I've been interested in light for a long time. And I've been, in a way, reserving my investigation into red light where I had enough time to go deep. The chance to speak with you, the Lifetime Achievement Award winner from the Society in Photobiomodulation, it's such an honor. Thank you so much for your work and your time today. I'm excited to share this with our community. Well, I've enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for listening. And come visit us soon at humanos.me.